0: As we continue this series, uh, Shoes, we started this series a few weeks ago and we're walking in the footsteps of, of those who walked with Jesus and kind of seeing uh, how their faith impacted their lives and their faith allowed them to overcome various things in their lives. Two weeks ago, we, we put on a pair of running shoes and we, we looked at how we have to have endurance uh, to, to last in our, our walk with Jesus, how it's more of a marathon and how our faith allows us to persist Last week, we put on a pair of wingtips, and we looked at how to avoid spiritual elitism. We talked about Nicodemus, how he seemed to have it all together, but he was one of these that really kind of looked down on other people, and and he had to allow his humility to grow and overcome his elitism. Uh, Today, we're going to put on a pair of stilettos, and uh, I know there's been a lot of people really curious where this is headed this week. Um, I will tell you this. These probably aren't the, the tallest stilettos when you think about it. These are the tallest ones my wife feels comfortable walking in. And she would probably tell you she doesn't feel comfortable in these even. Uh, Somebody asked me if I was going to put them on and walk around in them today. And I'll just say the church doesn't have good enough workman's comp insurance for me to (laughs) attempt that. So, no, not happening. Sorry. Uh, I'd be right there with my dad nursing uh, a few broken bones. So that's not going to happen. Trust me, I will publicly humiliate myself plenty of times for your enjoyment. uh, But today, intentionally, isn't going to be one of them. Uh, Make no promises about unintentional. But we see this pair of stilettos, and we're going to talk about this woman we meet in John chapter 4. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, that's where we're going to be at. In this story, Jesus is, is passing through the region called Samaria, and he stops in a town called Sychar at, at this well. And we introduce this woman that he gets this encounter with. And over the course of their encounter, it becomes very obvious that she has a less than glamorous past. In fact, she has a very messy past. And she actually has a very messy and very broken present as well. There's a lot of bad things going on in her life right now. And if, if you're kind of like me, you have been taught this story over your life. Kind of one of the thoughts has always been this woman has resorted to prostitution. And and that's why she's coming to Jesus at this time. Maybe it would be the same thing with any other guy she would make this approach to. Many commentators and and scholars debate this. Because there's a lot that don't think that's the case. They think that, well, she's just an adulteress. After all, Jesus points out she's been married multiple times. And she's currently with a man that she's not married to. But a third option, too, that some commentators throw out there is that it's neither of the first two, but rather she's simply the victim of a broken system that's abusive towards women. See, in this system, women ranked so low, they had no say in anything. So once a marriage happened, a woman was stuck in it regardless. A man could divorce pretty easily. So maybe she's been the victim of that, and she's been tossed aside multiple times, and that's led her to where she is today. I I don't know the case, but I know whatever it is, she comes to this point trying to impress people. So maybe she's overdressed for the occasion, Maybe she's uh, got a little too much makeup on and she's trying to, to hide everything in her past. You know, I, I kind of picture her as one of these that make sure she, people only see the good things about her and they ignore all the baggage that she brings with her. You know, maybe she's one of these that on her Facebook page, it's nothing but selfies from very flattering angles. I, I don't know. But I know she's an outcast. And I know she's an outcast because in in verse 6 of chapter 4, John leaves this little detail in here. He says that Jesus is sitting at at Jacob's well. And at the end of verse 6, he says it was about the sixth hour. That's noon. Why is that significant? Because women came first thing in the morning to draw water from the well. And here she's coming several hours later. I don't know why, I don't know if she just doesn't like crowds, I mean, I'm that way, I don't really like large crowds, I'd kind of rather be places where it's not as, as heavy. Yesterday we went to Crater Lake, and getting into the park it was about a mile or two long line of cars from each direction. I'm pretty sure at least 90 of you were there, so if you were at Crater Lake yesterday, One. <laughs> I don't know her case. I don't know why she comes to the the well at this point in time. Maybe she doesn't want to be judged by other people. Maybe she doesn't want them seeing what's going on in her life or in her past. I don't know, but whatever the case, I'm glad that she's there at this point in time. I like to think it's just God's timing in all this at work, because when she comes and has this interaction with Jesus, we see this, this kind of series of events. We see these aspects that we need to be mindful of because they show us what it means for somebody to move from this period of seeking and searching, like she's doing right now, into this period in the state of following Jesus. See, she's searching, and I don't know if she even knows what she's searching for. I don't know if she even knows that she's seeking, but she's seeking something. And so her interaction with Jesus gives us this insight that we should be mindful of in a series of aspects that pop up The first aspect that we see in her is we see that Jesus breaks down barriers. So in this interaction, we see how Jesus breaks down barriers. Uh, It starts in verse 7. It says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John adds the detail here, For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, right off the bat, we see there's a barrier here. And the big barrier is this cultural, societal barrier that's put in place. And there's two parts to this. The first, as John points out, is between Jew and Samaritan. Now, for us, I think as Christians, we associate Samaritan with something good. We we hear the parable of the good Samaritan. We, We see hospitals with the name Samaritan on it. Or there's this big charity called Samaritan's Purse. And we think of Samaritan being a good thing. But the Jews hated the Samaritans. They did not get along. They were rivals, basically. See, what the Samaritans were, they were Jews who basically had married outside of their culture and outside of their race, and as a result, more or less, for lack of a better term, diluted down the gene pool. Kind of how the Jews viewed this. So the the Jews called Samaritans half-breeds, and and to them, they had made the Jewish nation, the Jewish race, unclean. See, Jews were very strict, Marry within... Build your families, reproduce from within. But the Samaritans didn't do that. Jews worshipped in Jerusalem. Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim. There were separate regions. And in fact, the point that Jesus even passed through Samaria to get where he was going, most Jews didn't do that. They went miles out of their way to avoid it. Imagine trying to drive up to Vancouver, Canada, and you went all the way to Idaho to get there. You didn't go straight line up through Washington. That's literally what the Jews did. They avoided Samaria at all costs. But the second barrier we see here, the second part of this cultural barrier is the more obvious one. Jesus is a man, this woman is not. And for any self-respecting Jewish man, you didn't start up a random conversation with a female that you weren't related to. It just didn't happen. And yet this woman comes to the well and Jesus engages her. He's very intentional in this. See, these walls, I think, are symbolic of the wall that's put up between us and God. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know the story. In the beginning, God creates everything. He creates the universe, the heavens and the earth. Then in Genesis 2, he creates man, and he builds this perfect paradise for man called the Garden of Eden. And God actually comes down to the garden and walks with man. I mean, I just, I love that visual of God walking through the garden with Adam and Eve. But by Genesis 3, we've messed it up. And I, I put myself in Adam and Eve's shoes because if I would have been there, I would have messed it up too. But we mess it up. And, and we create such a, a divide between us and God that he actually kicks us out of the garden and builds a wall. In verse 24 of Genesis chapter three, it says, he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. I mean, if, I don't know if you can picture that visual very well. But God is, is making sure that we cannot get back into the Garden of Eden. He's doing everything he can to make sure we aren't allowed back in. In other words, we've become those Samaritans. We have diluted down what God made for us that was perfect and pure. But symbolism aside, we still have barriers today in our culture, in our society We have barriers that are based on socioeconomic levels and status. We see those all the time. We have barriers that are based on political viewpoints and and affiliations. We have barriers based on race, on gender. We even have barriers based on personal interests. And what happens is when we put these in place, we make it very difficult to reach somebody who becomes any different than we are. And when we can't reach them, those who are lost, who are wandering, who are, are caught up in messiness or brokenness, They can't get to us very easily, and as a result, they can't get to God either. And that's the danger of barriers. But the beauty of Jesus is he eliminates barriers. He takes them away. Ephesians 2, Paul writes this, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Now Paul's writing literally here about Jew and Gentile. That's why he says the two becoming one. But that relates to us as well too. Uh, We could consider ourselves Jews and anybody different than us Gentiles. That's kind of what Paul's getting at here with the symbolism in this. There's no longer that barrier between us and God. That angel with the flaming sword has been replaced by Jesus. There's a new gateway to God. But at the same time, we still put barriers up today we still, even though Jesus is tearing them down, we still put them up. And maybe it's not us personally putting them up, but we're helping to maintain those walls that go up. And and we see this. And and the thing I love about this church, the thing I've, I've heard about this church from a year ago before I ever even came out here, was this church loves people. That's what Tom told me in the very first conversation I had with him last summer. This church loves people. And I've seen nothing to dispute that. Every week I'm here, I see that in action. But even still, we have to be very careful that we don't start profiling people when they walk through our doors, because that's easy to do. That's very human of us to do. And what do I mean by that? We may not see anybody walk through the door wearing a pair of stilettos overdressed for the occasion. But we have to make sure that we're not just eyeballing people and say, well, I know that person's a believer, I'm gonna go love them, because that's not how Jesus operated Again, maybe nobody walks through here literally wearing these shoes. What if somebody walks through that door and their t-shirt has a marijuana leaf on it? What if somebody walks through that door and they're questioning everything and kind of being standoffish? What if somebody walks through that door and they're holding hands with someone of the same sex? What's our response? What's our initial view? What's our initial thought? I can tell you what Jesus would have been. Jesus went to them immediately. The thing about Jesus that's so cool is Jesus went right to them. He met them where they were and that's what upset the elite. Those people like Nicodemus last week. In fact, in one such instance he does this with a man named Levi. He becomes Matthew, one of the disciples. He was a tax collector. He was a hated sinner. And Jesus goes to him, and he meets him where he is, and that upsets those elite uh, religious types. And they accuse Jesus of just becoming a sinner. And I love what Jesus says down here. He says, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. See, what Jesus is getting at is, if everybody in the world was healthy, we don't need hospitals. We don't have police department and military because our world is safe and everybody gets along. That's the purpose of a savior, See, Jesus, I love this, he didn't <clears throat> go to people and make them fill out a membership application. He didn't make them say, well, give me this and I'll get back with you when I make my decision. He met them where they were. And the best part about it, he met them where they were and then he pointed them to God. We, talk, we, we read this in the writings of Paul, that, that Jesus gets down and basically meets us while we were still sinners and died for us. Heard this quote, and I don't remember who said it, but I love this quote. If you're lost, if you're messy, wherever you are in life, or if you've been a Christian for years, wherever you are, Jesus loves you just as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. So he would go get elbow deep in the mire and in the muck and in the dirtiness with these sinners, and I loved it because he always brought them towards God. He didn't leave them in their sin, He brought them closer to God. And that's the first aspect in this interchange we see from moving from a place of seeking and searching to a place of following is that Jesus breaks down barriers. But the second aspect we see here is that to move from seeking and searching to following, you can't understand who Jesus really is until you get close to him. See, we see in this passage with this woman, she doesn't know who he is. Starting in in chapter 4, verse 10, after she's pointed out their differences, Jesus answers her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? See, this woman uh, thinks he's talking about the water that's in the well right below them. He's talking about eternal life. You you pick up more and more on that as you read the next few verses. He's speaking figuratively. She's thinking literally. And that's that's not uncommon. We see that time and time again with Jesus when it comes to the Gospels. That's why he often tells a parable and then has to turn around and explain the parable because people don't understand what he's talking about here. But she has no clue who he is. And yet I think if we were there in Jesus' shoes that day, if, if we were the one giving this woman this challenge and, and she replied that back to us, we'd probably roll our eyes and laugh a little bit. Like, seriously, you don't get it? I mean, come on, it's, don't, think a little bit. You know, we, That's how we would be because that's how we are now. See, I think too often we, we kind of judge the way others respond and the way others understand and the way others act and do based on what we assume they should know about Jesus. But we assume they know as much about Jesus as we do. And that's the struggle here. In fact, I'll take that a step further and say that someone's inability to act like Jesus likely stems from the fact they know very little about Jesus. Uh, Jennifer and I have been married almost eight years. <clears throat> Excuse me, it'll be eight years next month. We dated for uh, about a year uh, before We were married, we had known each other for a long time, about 10 years or so, all the way back to high school. But if you've been married, you kind of know how this works. At some point in our our relationship of of being friends, we got to a point where we thought, we could date each other. And then at some point of of dating, we got to this this point of understanding each other enough and and knowing enough about each other that we fell in love. And then at some point, you, you see how this is going, we decided to get married. But you know how it works if you've been married, Even at that point, your your wedding day and those next few days after, you really don't know that much about this person. Now, maybe you know each other's personalities, you know kind of how each other might like certain things or dislike certain things, but until you've actually lived with that person day in and day out, you don't necessarily know how they'll react to everything. You don't necessarily know how to anticipate what they're going to do. And so day after day, as we've been married, we've gotten a better understanding for each other. We're not perfect at it, obviously. If we did, we probably would, would not have any disputes ever. But we understand each other well enough to kind of know what each other will want and not want and how we'll react to certain things. And that's only happened because we spend time together. And even if we're apart, like this past week when I was, was on the road, we're talking every day. We're on the phone, we're on FaceTime, whatever. We're, we're, we're in communication with each other. And our relationship with Jesus is the exact same way. The only way... That we get to know more about Jesus is by being with Him. In fact, we can't possibly know enough about Jesus to understand who He really is until we spend time with Jesus. Uh, those who are lost and don't know the way, uh, sometimes we just assume they should. But the reason they don't know who Jesus is is because they haven't been with Him. And as the church, we need to be mindful of this and be careful not to judge somebody based on the standards that we have for ourselves because they know nothing about them. But I think a bigger danger with this, with failing to really understand and know who Jesus is, is the danger and the temptation to kind of personalize Jesus. In fact, I heard this quote a long time ago, and I've heard it so many times, I don't even remember who originally said it. It's been attributed to so many prominent names. But this quote says, God created man in his image, and we return the favor. And we see this, we, we make a cut-and-paste Jesus. We pick the parts of Jesus that we like the best, and that's what we cling to, and that's what we follow. But Jesus gave a very strict warning about this. In Matthew chapter 7, near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about dealing with false prophets. And he says this in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And verse 23 breaks my heart because Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, I think when it comes to this statement, He's talking, again, with false prophets in mind. But it goes to all of us who follow Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus is saying, in other words, if you're going to enter into a relationship with me, if you're going to follow me, it has to be all the way. And we see the story uh, in, in the Gospels about the rich young ruler who couldn't let go of what he had. He couldn't, he couldn't just jump into that deep end. He wanted to kind of keep one foot on both. And Jesus says no. No. You can't follow Jesus lightly or flippantly. It's all or nothing with Jesus. Now go back to this story in John 4. This woman here is clueless. But I mean, she's not, not dumb. If you read her story and you really pick this out, she's pretty astute. She knows what's going on. And particularly, she knows the Samaritan way of life. Now she doesn't know much about the Jewish way of life, but you can't fault her for that. But most women weren't allowed to really even understand these things, and she does. So she understands what's going on, and what she gets out of this is just like Nicodemus did, she gets challenging response after challenging response from Jesus. And she doesn't bat an eye. Jesus lays out her entire past for her, tells her what she's done and what she's doing, and she doesn't blink, doesn't scare her off. She embraces that challenge, and then he even drops the bombshell that he says, I'm the Christ. I'm the one you're talking about and she just takes it in stride. She allows her understanding to be opened up and stretched and challenged. We see that last week with Nicodemus. He was the same way. He he followed Jesus because he allowed his knowledge and understanding of Jesus to be stretched because he bought in, and he liked what he heard, and he allowed his faith to grow that. So the second aspect you have to be mindful of is you cannot understand who Jesus is until you spend time with him. The third aspect, to move from this period of searching and seeking to following, is that to follow Jesus, you have to put your past behind. I like the movie The Lion King, and I love the line kind of halfway through, and right around the Hakuta Matata scene, little Simba has run away from his, his past, and Pumbaa the warthog says, you gotta leave your behind past ya. Yeah, he gets his words flipped. <laughs> but his point is the same. You've got to leave all that. Leave everything you've done and you think you've done and everything that you've hurt and move forward because that's where Jesus is. We sang this song earlier, Future and Past, and I love what Lewis said. Who you were doesn't determine who you're going to be. And we see this in the end of her story. After Jesus has, has laid out all this stuff, told her her sin, told her who he is, John writes in verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all I've ever done. Could this be the Christ? Now he he uses the wording here that she left her water jar. I think that's both literal and symbolic. I think she just took off running. She was so excited and just left everything right there. But I think that's also symbolic of the fact this is her past life and she's just dropped it and run away. And we see this other places throughout the Bible. In Luke chapter five, Jesus is calling his apostles, he's calling his disciples. In the first few verses, he's calling a group of fishermen, uh, Andrew and Peter and James and John, and they've just made this huge catch of fish that, that Jesus has told them how to fish, and, and they've, they've hauled in this boatload of fish. And in verse 11, it says that when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. I mean, this is worth a lot of money, and they just left it, and they followed Jesus. And then you skip on down a few verses, and he calls Levi the tax collector, this hated sinner. And he said, follow me. In verse 28, it says, leaving everything behind, he rose and followed him. Now, I like the one with with Matthew there especially, because there's no going back for him. He's not coming back to that tax booth. That wasn't going to be allowed. But just like this woman, she leaves it all, and follows. You kind of compare this, last week we talked about Nicodemus, it took some time. He didn't just drop it all and follow. We, we said it took a couple of years. But here's the thing that, that, that's important about this. It doesn't matter if you come up to the pool and jump off the high dive into the deep end, or if you wade in from the shallow end. The important thing is you're making your way forward. Whether you're, you're quick or slow with it, you're progressing and you're moving forward to a place of getting closer to Jesus. Jesus regardless of your past, regardless of your present, regardless of how dirty or broken or messy your situation is. And that's a struggle that a lot of people have, is letting go of all that messiness and all that brokenness and all that sin. See, I think the big struggle that a lot of people have is that a lot of people don't understand grace. I know a lot of people, people in my family, struggle with this. They say, look what I've done, or look what I've done to other people, or look what's happened to me, and they can't let go of that. They're thinking with a very human mindset because if we've been hurt or if we've done something wrong, we expect retribution against us. Or if something bad's happened to us, we want to get revenge. That's our very human mindset. But God doesn't operate that way. He gives grace freely for those of us who believe in it. And those who can't understand grace can't understand forgiveness. I like what the old preacher Dwight Moody said about grace. He said grace means undeserved kindness. It's the gift of God to man. The moment he sees he's unworthy of God's favor. Grace is unmerited favor. There's nothing you can do to ever deserve it and nothing you can ever do to earn it. And yet it's given to us anyway. Jesus went to the cross, and by going to the cross, he eliminated that need to try and get past the angel with the flaming sword back to God. He gave us another way, another door, another gate. And that's what this woman realizes here. And I love her story, because in spite of everything she's done and everything she's doing, she buys in. And because of that, because she allows her faith to be bigger than her past or bigger than her, her current messy situation, John writes in verse 39 that many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. She went after them because Jesus came after her. Her desire to to, to spread the gospel, her desire to become close to Jesus was bigger than her worries, bigger than her fears, bigger than her doubts, bigger than her lack of understanding, bigger than anything she brought to the well that day. And that's what we need to try and follow. So what do we do with all this? How do we we move from this place of seeking and searching to following? Most of you are probably already following. You're probably somewhere along this line. Maybe some of you aren't. Maybe some of you are seeking. And you don't know what you're, you're searching for. You don't know what you're looking for. Maybe you don't even realize you are searching. But you realize there's something better than where you are right now or where you've been. So what do we do with all that? Here's a takeaway for you. Say yes to your next step with God, regardless of your past. Maybe it's your very first step. Maybe you're walking up to the the pool and you're just gonna dip your toe in. Say yes to doing that. Or maybe you've been in the deep end for a while. Say yes to your next step. Whatever your past, whatever your current situation, God is bigger. His grace is greater than all of that. And here's the good news. Good news. You don't have to understand everything about Jesus to take your next step with Jesus. Jesus wants you to belong to him, to his church. He wants you to come through here, whatever your situation and state, and you belong, you believe, and then as you come together with the church, it's our responsibility to help you understand more. Because what Jesus is pointing out to this woman here, and and kind of what we've learned through the story is, the more you understand Jesus, then the more you'll start acting like Jesus, and the more you act like Jesus, the more you start to look like him. But that doesn't start day one. It doesn't happen day one, I beg your pardon. It starts that way, and the ball starts rolling forward. So allow your faith to overcome your past. Allow your faith to overcome your messiness, whatever your current situation. Learn to leave it behind. Learn to focus on God and move forward. Let's pray. Father, we are are so thankful for this example, God, the the knowledge that regardless of what we've done or where we are, you're still there with us and you're still calling to us. God, I pray right now for anybody who's here today who is there where that woman was, who is searching, seeking, seeking, lost, broken, hurting, whatever the situation, God, I pray that right now you let them know you're still there. God, that because of the cross, those barriers are gone. There's nothing keeping us from you. So God, I pray that if anybody's in that situation, Lord, you would challenge and and, and stretch their understanding of who you are. God, that you would point them uh, into our path so that we could come alongside them and help them get a better understanding of you. God, I pray anybody struggling with this concept of grace or forgiveness and and says, I'm not good enough or I don't deserve this, you remind them it's yours anyway. And you remind them that you gave it to us freely and all we have to do is embrace it and believe it. God, I just pray for this body, this incredible group of people here today. Lord, that you would speak to hearts and minds. You would open hearts and minds. God, I ask that whatever our next step we need to take, we could do it with boldness and courage, just like this woman did. We would focus forward and not back. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.